Hi, this is Rabbi Jessman, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist. And if you're in denial, boy, do I have an episode for you. Hey, Gip. Hey, Amanda. You know it's finals week? Yeah, I am aware of that. I had a really great idea. What was your idea? Okay, so I know that we're coming to the end of the year with finals. But what would happen if we decided to take on a brand new book? Amanda, what? Right now? Right now! Like right now? Like this episode? At this moment? Yeah, right now! Let's go! It's incredible that as we head to the end of the year that we're actually starting a new book, which seems a little strange, except don't worry, the book that we're talking about definitely has to do with the end of the year, except maybe it doesn't because it's possible that we're starting to talk about our Passover story in December. But that's okay because eventually it'll catch up with our Jewish cycle. We're so excited to be starting a new book in our second season with you. And what's in a name? Well, we'll tell you, especially when we reveal the name of our featured guest tonight. Rabbi Jessica Minnan is a writer, ritualist, and liturgist committed to the discipline of delight. I love that. Part of the founding team of One Table, Jess is also the founder of Seven Wells, a sexuality and intimacy education program, and Ecstatic Mincha, a Shabbat afternoon dance experience. Gabe will 100% be going to that. She is a sought-after educator who has taught for Hillel's, Federations, Synagogues, and JCCs from Berkeley to the Berkshires. Originally from Paducah, Kentucky, she is an alumna of Washington University in St. Louis, the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, Paideia, the European Institute for Jewish Studies in Sweden, Baltimore, Hebrew University, and the Jewish Theological Seminary, and recognizes that maybe this is too many degrees, but let's be real, I'm not one to speak about that. She is a fellow of Rabbis Without Borders, Reboot, the Shalom Hartman Institute's Women's Leadership Mission, and the Rusquet Institute for Professional Leadership. Also of note, she used to be a musical journalist for Village Voice Media, and no one tell Gabe, a bartender. Jessica lives in Denver, Colorado, and is mom to one amazing dog and one amazing toddler. Rabbi Jessica Minnan, we are so excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. I could not be more excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And not to completely have him be intimidated, but my favorite bartender, what's up, Gabe Snyder? I am not a bartender. I've never claimed to be a bartender. I really don't know what I'm doing. I just know what I think tastes good. Excellent. And as my father, Barry Weiss, does, you know, listen, good wine is whatever wine you like, whether it's $8, whether it's $80, it's what you like. Edan, speaking of things that I love and like, what's going on, Edan? Not much. Just hanging around today. Happy to be here with you guys. I'm glad. Edan is also going to be made into a bartender one day. We'll find out how it works. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. What's your favorite name? My favorite name? Um, hmm. Well, 
I had one bat mitzvah student who was named Kohava Sela. That was pretty cool. That was a good name. That is a cool name. I guess my feeling was this is a really good opportunity because the whole Torah portion is all about names, right? Shmot, it means names. Yeah, that's that's the title of the portion and of the book as a whole. But that's really not what it's all, you know, about. So it's not just a book about names. No, that would be a, well, much harder book to pronounce, but probably an easier book to summarize. Okay, so what is this week's portion about, especially as we're starting a brand new story? All right. Shemot, that means names. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Joseph all have kids and then die, leaving behind a whole bunch of descendants who were actually doing pretty well in Egypt. Not so fast, says a new pharaoh, afraid of the Jews. He enslaves all of them and orders the midwives to kill Hebrew infant boys. The midwives, Shifra and Pua, are like, yeah, we're not doing that. And they make up a lie that Hebrew women are just too good at giving birth, so by the time they get there, the baby's already been born. Apparently, only one kind of Israelite labor was difficult in Egypt. Pharaoh wasn't thrilled, so he ordered all baby boys to be thrown into the Nile. Hey, who's that? It's Yocheved, and she has a son, but they're Israelites, so the baby is going to be killed. Yocheved puts the baby in a basket and floats the basket down the river. The baby's sister follows the basket, and when the baby is found by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, the sister offers to find a Hebrew nurse for the child. Surprise, it's Yocheved. Nice. Pharaoh's daughter names the kid Moses, which means something like out from the water. I wonder if that will be a theme. Fast forward and Moses is grown up and he goes out and sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He looks around and, seeing nobody around, intervenes himself, striking and killing the Egyptian. Moses hides the body in the sand, which is a really great place to hide a dead body. Just when Moses thinks he can get away with the murder, another Hebrew mentions the killing. Well, thinks Moses, cat's out of the bag, I gotta run. So he runs all the way to Midian, where he comes upon a well where the priest of Midian's seven daughters are trying to get water, but some shepherds are giving them a hard time. Moses defends the girls and helps feed the flock. Hey, look, water and redemption. Cool theme. The daughters return to their father, Reuel, who might have a different name later, and they tell him the story of the mysterious Egyptian who helped them. Reuel was quite happy with Moses and has him stay for dinner and also gives him his daughter, Tsipporah, as a wife. They have a kid named Gershom saying, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Fast forward again, and the Israelites are still suffering back in Egypt, and they cry out to God, and surprise, God actually hears them this time. So one day, when Moses is out in the wilderness tending to a flock of sheep, God speaks to him through a bush that's burning but not being consumed. God has Moses take off his shoes before making quite the introduction. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses is pretty freaked out, but God continues, saying that the Israelites are suffering, and it's Moses' job to lead them to freedom. But why me, asks Moses, because I said so, but don't worry, I've got your back. Oh, and by the way, at some point, we'll meet again at this very spot. Moses has some more questions, namely about God's name, to which God responds, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh. Tell the people Ehyeh sent you. They'll get it. God shows Moses how to do a couple of cool magic tricks and encourages Moses about his speech impediment, and Moses goes back to his father-in-law, whose name is now Yitro, and tells him that he's going back to Egypt. God says to Moses, when you return to Egypt, I will stiffen Pharaoh's heart, and he will not let the people go, so there's going to be some extra steps to this whole thing. Seems unnecessary, but okay. Oh, by the way, Tzipporah circumcises their son to keep God from killing them, so that's cool, I guess. Moses has a brother named Aaron, and they have a nice reunion 
action scene, and Moses explains to the Israelites what's happening before they go to meet Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not super into the whole let my people go thing, so he gives the Israelites even more work to do. Nice going, Moses. Moses goes to God and says, hey, what's up with that? God responds, give it time. And that's Parashat Shemot. Oh my God. <laughs> that's incredible. You're incredible. Thank you. I try really hard. It's unbelievable. This is like, who needs, I mean, the rabbit is great and everything, but this is a specialized skill. This is something I definitely want to bring into my canterit in the future. This is, you know, just full on irreverent Torah summaries every, every Shabbat. That is my plan. voice, your delivery. So good. I, in the presence of greatness, what an honor. How cool. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Jess, this has been a dream come true to have you come on the podcast. I know we've been talking about it for months. We're so excited that you got to join us for our second book in our second season, which is so weird that we've been doing this for over a year and that we're here, but we're so, so excited. So Jessica, this might be the most important question that I ask you all day. Gabe may have missed this during his partial rundown, but I have a really important opinion question for you, which is, do you think that the documentary, The Prince of Egypt, is a great movie or do you think it is the greatest movie of all time? So... You will be surprised or maybe not surprised to know how prepared for this question I am because among the notes that I have for today is to explicitly talk about the Prince of Egypt. The documentary. The documentary. Correct. The Prince of Egypt. Yeah. Which documents with complete accuracy. So much so that it is not only mandatory for all of my B'nai Mitzvah students, I make all of my conversion students watch it and they're adults. It is extremely well done. And it captures what I think are the most important elements of the stories that we're going to be talking about today. Fun fact, and this really matters to me because we're going to be talking about names and language and voices. Do you guys know how they created the voice of God in the Prince of Egypt? Uh, The original casting was to have the voice of Moses also be the voice of God. Um, that coming from a midrash saying, what did God's voice sound like? Well, God spoke in the voice of Moses. Uh, And I believe they ended up layering a bunch of voices, layering a whole bunch of the cast members all on top of each other. Is that right? They did. For the voice of God, they recorded all of the main cast members and then layered those voices on top of each other so that the voice of God is the voice of Klal Yisrael, the voice of the people, multiple people with different experiences and backgrounds, genders and identities and senses of self. And that is the voice of God. I I love The Prince of Egypt. I think it is one of the best movies ever made. Uh, sorry, one of the best documentaries ever made. I love the music. I love the story. And I love the way that it weaves Midrash, that it weaves actual like Jewish thought into the story, sometimes in very explicit ways, um, such as in some of the stories it tells, and sometimes in almost hinted at ways. um, When you have the shot of 
Moses' basket uh, in the river that makes it look like it's really big and then it almost gets run over by another boat. Um, and that being an allusion to uh, the connection between Moses' basket and Noah's ark, which are the same word in Hebrew, the ark and the basket. Uh, so I, I really love how it weaves in some of that commentary. Um, yes, the, the word is teva. Yeah, teva, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. and it's, it's, it's cool, right? Because what we're seeing is one arc that is the arc of Genesis, the arc of the creation narrative, the arc that redeems humankind from certain destruction. And in this story, in the story of Shemot and the story of Moshe and Moses, we have the arc refracted through the light of the individual. And yet it is still the vehicle of deliverance, the deliverance of the individual. And we need both of those things. And it's just another opportunity to talk about how these narratives all stitch together. We don't enter Shemot, we don't enter Exodus and don't talk about Genesis anymore. They're deeply connected and the, the language and the names are what connect them. It's so cool. I think one of the most wonderful things that the pandemic did for us was the ability to come on to these Zoom calls where you can actually see everybody's name most of the time. And I know that for people who meet people all the time, sometimes names can be a hard thing to hold on to. Um, for me, I really try hard to remember people's names. I think it's really powerful when you can say, hey, Jess, how are you? You know, how was your day versus when you're like, hey, how are you? How's it going? Right. I think there's a power when we're able to use someone's name and we're able to call somebody by name. And I think there's something really beautiful about the fact that truly this story starts with names. It's kind of, and for those who for those people who know me, you'll know that this is not surprising, like a Broadway musical overlude where we start with really introducing every character that might be in the the show. You know, Schmote clearly had an eye towards musical theater, which is perhaps why the documentary is so real to form of, of what happened in our Exodus story. I am curious, though, that's something that, that really drives me in my behavior is learning people's names and being able to build those relationships through using those names. But Jess, for you, what are the insights, the beliefs that really help drive the work that you're doing, both with one table, but also with the work that you've created on your own, like Seven Wells, like Ecstatic Mincha? Like what moves you to move others? I think there are three sort of fundamental or foundational ideas or values in Judaism that compel me to continue to do the work. And the work in and of itself is a relationship. I often talk about Judaism as a love story because it's a, for me, it's a, it's a relationship that I choose to be in. And sometimes that's a hard choice. <laughs> there are moments in which being a Jew in the world is deeply complicated. And there are moments when I wish maybe I could have been or pursued something else. And that's, that's honest. That's real. But at the end of the day, I feel like 
this relationship, this love story is my, my truth or an expression of what I believe to be true in the world. And those things for me are language and the power of language, joy, and the importance of pursuing delight and being very serious about what it means to find and create joy in your life and in the world, and the importance of seeking. And I know that's important to you too, because it's embedded in the name of the podcast. Droshing is to seek. It's to seek out more in the world. And that's what I believe really defines me as a Jew, is to seek meaning-making. Otherwise, it's chaos on a spinning rock, right? And I, I get that because you know what? It's chaotic and it's a spinning rock. So let me live in the world as a meaning maker. Let me drosh, not just Torah, but all of the aspects of my life. And when we get this directive in, in the book of Genesis to, to be a blessing, that's what I think that means. Go and be a blessing. Go and seek. Go and make meaning and share it and do it with joy and invest in the words that allow you to do that. And that really animates my work. It animates my entire rabbinate. It animates what I did and continue to do uh, with One Table and Shabbat. It gives me a sense of empowerment, that if there's something in the Jewish world that doesn't exist and I want it, I can create it. Because if I want it, I bet someone else does too. I think we see a ton of that happening, especially in the beginning of the Shemot story, but it's not always named. And I wanted to put my finger on something that is interesting to me, but also sometimes troublesome to me, that our most powerful characters, like the ones who really move our story along, and I would argue those are the women in our Moses narrative, right, when we really start it, are all unnamed, they are all unnamed, and the only reason that we have names for them is because of our midrash, right? Because there are rabbis out there that said, we are going to give these people names, or we are going to connect them with names that come later. But in the beginning of our story of, of when we hear Moses being born, his mom is not named, his father's not named, his sister's not named, we don't even find out he has a brother until the burning bush episode, right? It's like Beauty and the Beast. You, you know, he doesn't discover that it's him until chapter three, literally. But I think that it's a really interesting thing about what does it mean to do something extraordinary and to remain anonymous until later somebody gives you or gifts you a name. The, I love this. The idea of anonymity and both the power it gives and the power it takes away. And as you mentioned, so many women in Torah remain nameless and are not named at all or are only named in Midrashic literature. I think names matter and names have power and names tell a story. And so without engaging in apologetics, without trying to make excuses for what's missing in the text, I can say on the one hand, as a woman and as a feminist and someone who prioritizes reading and understanding Torah through both of those lenses, I like the idea that 
I'm a part of a linguistic tradition. I am a part of an ongoing pursuit of refining storytelling and language in such a way that those who are unnamed do not remain nameless throughout time. So I do find a sense of redemption, dare I say, in the idea that Rabbinic literature functions in such a way that we can see what is missing. We can identify gaps, not only in the narrative, but gaps in meaning making, gaps that prevent us as a people from engaging more deeply with this text and say, let's fix that. Let's fix that. Because that project of interpretation is what gives me permission 1,500, 2,000 years later to do exactly the same thing. And I tell my students this too, which is that your midrash, the story of your life and the story that you tell about this text is no less valid than the midrashim that we study as a part of the canon of rabbinic literature. There was something missing and you asserted and inserted yourself and your life and what matters to you into this story. So yes, on the one hand, I find the anonymity embedded in the text deeply problematic, and yet I'm grateful for it in a way because it is the permission giver for an ongoing legacy of naming. So I, I'm troubled by something, and I'm hoping that you can help me out with it. Um, and I think the text might start to offer me an answer, but I'm hoping you can clarify for me. I so often feel as a leader that I'm not the right person for the job. Um, when Moses says, like, who am I to go lead these people? Like, I totally feel that. When Moses uh, sings the song in the documentary, the All I've Ever Wanted song, where he's all conflicted about, you know, is Egypt my home? Are these my people? Where do I go? What do I do? Um, and he runs off to Midian, and then Yitro sings a song about looking at your life through heaven's eyes. It, 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 something about that really speaks to me of uh, not really knowing where I stand, and even if I know where I stand, not being entirely confident that I should be there, that I'm the right person. You know, I feel that I'm a stranger in a strange new land. I feel the I'm slow in, of speech and slow of tongue. Um, I, I feel that on a really visceral level. I And I'm wondering how you respond to the text when somebody says, you know, who am I? Uh, who am I to study Torah? Who am I to write my own midrash? Um, you know, who am I to stand among the the Chazal, the rabbis of old? You are an inheritor, and that gives you this responsibility, should you choose to accept it, of being a contributor. And it's really hard. And I think it's important to say that, that as rabbis and as cantors and as Jewish educators and leaders in the field, we do not have the lockdown on the answers. And we do not know how everything should be taught, how you should learn. And if anyone ever tells you that they do, it's sus, okay? You should be mighty suspect of that person. This is like a, the calling card of a rabbi that I don't want to hang with is like they, they seem to have all the answers and I'm like, no. So 
we experience this regardless of our field as imposter syndrome and and show me the person who hasn't experienced imposter syndrome and who isn't also a narcissistic sociopath, right? Experiencing imposter syndrome is a part of what it means to be human. In fact, I would argue that there aren't a lot of completely confident characters in the Torah. You may argue that the character of God as God is represented in the Torah exhibits a kind of complete confidence. But you also might add that the character of God as represented in the Torah is a narcissistic sociopath, okay? (laughs) So (laughs) we have to be really careful when we think about what it means as human beings and as prospective leaders or as prospective people who want to engage in the world to be given the opportunity to engage in this text as contributors. Because it's very easy to say, As I did for the book, you know, for the first 25 years of my life, I wanted nothing to do with Judaism or Jews, okay? I didn't get Jewy until after college, and it was a slow burn. (laughs) And this Torah portion was the very first piece of Torah I studied ever. I didn't know Jews studied Torah. And I came into the Beit Midrash, the, the study hall, the place where formal Torah study often happens, feeling imposter would be, I I will get emotional telling the story, imposter syndrome would be a nice word for it, that I didn't belong here and that this didn't belong to me because I had no idea what was going on. And I had to learn the olive bet. And it was just so slow and painful. And everyone around me was so smart. And I was the idiot in the room. I am not the idiot in the room. I wasn't then. (laughs) Definitely not now. But what I realized is that we very rarely put ourselves in the position of not knowing. And to take on the mantle of potential imposter and to do so with joy and glee and to say, I may not know, but you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to put my voice out there. I'm going to sit in a room and be the kid who doesn't know the Aleph bet and learn it at 25. Ultimately, if you engage in that process whether you're 12, 25, or 55, we are all newcomers and we are all inheritors of the text. And therefore, it's not comparing myself to the the greatness of Amanda and the brilliance of Gabe, although I do because I'm a human being. It's saying that my voice alongside Amanda's and Gabe adds a richness to this story and to this text that I don't think the Jewish people can survive without. That is my continuity hypothesis. I'm jumping on this because I am so excited. And as you were speaking, I went, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I don't even know if she realizes that she is setting up an incredible part of our story that's often overlooked. And I want to say, you have a biblical character who is right there with you who may have felt some imposter syndrome, who may not have felt up to the greatness of the family that she joined, and who went in and you guessed it, did it anyway. And if she hadn't, wait for it, there would be no continuation, no continuity of the Jewish people. And I'm talking about Sipora. And if you go to Exodus 4, uh, 24, you know, for those who are following at home, um, and even at 425, which is when we get Sipora in here, 
for some reason, God gets a little angry and seeks to kill somebody. We've been there. Some of us understand, like, this rage monster, it happens. But in this moment, Sipora doesn't hesitate and she doesn't say, I'm uh, an imposter or I'm not Jewish enough to X or, you know, I don't belong or I'm the idiot in the room. She says, cool, time to do something. And she circumcises her son and she yells out, right? Like, you are a, a, it says a bridegroom of blood to me, but like you are like this moment of, of, it could even be like a, a groom. It could be a gift. It could be something like really precious, right? Ki chatan damim atali. And God, like all of a sudden is a piece and God's like, cool, 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 cool. Sorry, maybe I was having a rough day. You know, uh, I understand that you've acted for my interest. Um, and Sipora kind of looks defiantly, or you can almost imagine she looks defiantly and she repeats it again, right? And she says, look, I did this. You are, you know, now because of this circumcision, part of this Jewish tradition. I think that's extraordinary. I think that 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 speaks to your experience too, Jessica, that like, Anybody has the ability to step up and have such an extraordinary, powerful influence. And that is a lot of what the story is about, right? We're not picking people who are necessarily the most well-spoken. We're not picking people who are necessarily the most well-known. We're picking people who, given the opportunity, will do something extraordinary. And that's amazing. It's amazing and I think it carries for me something in this Parsha that is profound and also speaks to connecting an earlier thread about the names of women and the actions of women. And I think about this a lot. Um, one of the things that motivates my work is thinking about what it means to be a Jewish woman in the world. And there are, it's almost like a constellation. So imagine six stars six women in this Parsha who, who, without whose light, none of the narrative events or main characters, so to speak, can do what they need to do. That's Shifra and Pua, the midwives. Pharaoh's daughter, who in the Midrash is, is called Batya. And there's a lot to say about that with Bait and Batya and what it means to have a non-Jewish woman playing a role of such primacy. Yocheved and Miriam, Moshe's mother and sister, and Sipporah, Moshe's wife. And so I will say again that of, of these six, this constellation of six stars, fully a third of them are not Jewish or are Jews by choice. And if we don't pay attention to that, I'm not entirely sure what we're doing. We have to understand, particularly for me as a female Jewish leader, that it's wonderful to use words like big tent and, and pluralism and inclusivity. And it's another thing, and this is like where language becomes action, where language pivots into joy, where language pivots into actual seeking, is to act on it 
And that's the directive to be a blessing in the world, to say, welcome, welcome to my table, welcome to my house of worship, welcome to my family. And for those of you um, who are listening, who are not Jewish or what some of us like to call Jew adjacent, um, welcome, welcome to this conversation, right? It is not only ours to have. And it's very exciting that there's kind of a meta narrative going on in this Parsha that's saying that pretty explicitly. So I'm thinking about this idea of table fellowship, of coming together, of welcoming in the stranger, of breaking bread. Um, and I'm thinking about how Reuel or how Yitro, whoever this guy is, receives Moses when Moses first arrives to Midian. How um, Moses saves or helps these seven daughters and they bring him back to their father and he eats with them and he as you said becomes a part of the family in two verses this guy is adopted and totally brought into the fold and you know it could be through a full musical number with dancing and a montage of birthing sheep um but also there's this really incredible notion that, A, we are taught to bring in the stranger, but B, that we are taught that by a stranger, that we're taught that by somebody who isn't of the Israelite nation, that Reuel or uh, Yitro is the one to teach Moses. And we know later on, Yitro will continue to teach Moses and will continue to influence how Israelite society works and functions. So uh, I'm really curious as to how you see not only us bringing people in, um, but how you see us looking out and learning from not only those within the fold, but without. So I have to tell you that Yitro is my boyfriend. Um, we've been involved since 2013. I gave my senior sermon at rabbinical school um, about Yitro. The root of his name, Yoter, is more, which means he's my kind of guy. Um, I have very strong feelings about him for precisely the reasons you shared. Um, he is the model of leadership that we end up following um, in the rest of the Torah. He is a model of welcoming and or hospitality, welcoming the stranger, radical hospitality, not just welcoming your friends, but welcoming people who are different from you. He also, for me, I think because of the almost magical nature of the way he appears in Torah, he has seven different names. He is woven in and out of the narrative almost mysteriously, has come to represent a kind of pursuit of weaving or stitching together the different parts of myself and the different names that I go by. Jess, Jessica, Chaya, Mom, and some others that I won't say on a public podcast. And I think that the more we do that and accept the invitation to do that, the better. 
And what I mean by that is to take the spiritual parts of ourselves and the professional parts of ourselves and the parts of us that are sexual beings and the parts of us that are committed to social justice and the parts of us that just want to stay inside and curl up in a ball because that is very real and say that all of those things can be true and amazing and interwoven and that there is a holistic human being that is made up of all of those names, just like Yitro. And what you're talking about with Yitro actually then serving as a kind of beacon or mile marker on the work of actually looking outward to gain knowledge and outward to kind of make those decisions about who we are, what are the components of our identity and how we want to function in the world is an incredible invitation. I think Judaism has phenomenal stuff, the language, the prayer, the conception of God, ideas about imminence and transcendence, value-driven work in the world. And you know what? I learn a lot from my mom and my stepdad and my family who are Christian. They teach me a lot about fellowship and brotherhood. And you know what else? I learn a lot from my friends who have done interfaith fellowship work who are Muslim. And I learn a lot from the Sikhs who have taught me how to show up with food wherever you are for as many people as possible. Thank you, Sikhs. And the more we do that, the better. It doesn't diminish who we are as Jews. I'm proud of who I am and I'm proud of what we have to share. But I got a lot to learn. So I'm always uh, looking for my yitro, looking for that beacon, that mile marker that's going to help me get better at being myself by adding another layer of meaning. I am so sure that we could keep talking for so many hours. I'm so enjoying this conversation. But I do know that we need to move on to our next segment. So before we do, uh, I'm going to call you another name, Rabbi. Um, if you had one piece of wisdom, uh, one call to action that you wanted to share, one thing that you wanted listeners to walk away with after hearing this episode, what would that be? Pursue joy. Ask yourself as often as possible if what you're doing is bringing you joy. And if the answer is no, take a breath, take a step back and reassess. Because a life lived in pursuit of joy leads to all other things. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. Um, I've been feeling a little overwhelmed with finals week. I hear that big time. It just feels like everywhere I look, there's an assignment or there are literally just like eight books that I'm holding at one time. Far too much to do. And I've been thinking about something that I like to do to relax. And I know that we were talking about musicals before. And I wanted to take an opportunity to just say like, I think that this portion and Stephen Sondheim, Zikrono Leverha, have something in common. Okay, what's that? Okay, so hear me out. I know 
that our portion is in the desert, but one of my favorite Sondheim musicals is Into the Woods. Okay. And in our intro, we are introduced to, like, probably one of the coolest characters, which is Little Red Riding Hood. Right. And she also feels a little overloaded, right? Like, she feels like there might be too many things for her to carry. And so she asks... Uh, You know, and she says this really nicely. She says, I sort of hate to ask it, but do you have a basket? And that made me wonder if you might be up to the challenge of connecting Moses and Schmote to Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods as an honor to a master of musicals. Well, Amanda, for this week's drink on Midrashic Mixology, We are proud to present The Baby in a Basket. Start off with the classic mason jar. Into it, we are going to squeeze an ounce of passion fruit juice for the suffering we experienced in Egypt. Add in one and a half ounces of bourbon for that time Moses killed that guy, and one ounce of orange juice for the energy to run all the way to Midian. Finish it off with a half ounce each of lemon juice and simple syrup for Moses' mixed feelings about being God's messenger to Pharaoh. Stir with ice and top it off with ginger ale. Float a basil leaf on top for Moses' floating basket across the Nile. For a non-alcoholic version, keep all those juices, but swap out the bourbon for one and a half ounces of apple cider. For a festive and fruity drink to celebrate this new book of Torah, we raise our glasses and say, Lechaim. I didn't think it was possible to love you more. Now I know it is. You're you're the baby to my basket, Gabe. You're just unreal. I know. Watch out, Etro. <laughs> There's a new canter in town. Um, I, as a Kentucky girl, I feel seen because any drink uh, that has a bourbon base is going to be very exciting for me. Um, and it sounds incredible. Passion fruit juice. Yeah. Yeah, passion fruit juice. I was trying to think of something a little more interesting, a little, you know, out there, out of the box. Um, And then I was thinking about, like, suffering in Egypt. And I was like, passion fruit. Ah, that could be interesting. So that was where that came from. I love it. I was ready for the burning bush. But I'm pretty sure that I'm going to make this cocktail. You know, if you uh, want to come up with a burning bush cocktail for us, I would love to see it. Uh, in case you are curious or need inspiration, last year's drink for Parashat Shemot was Not Your Mother's Milk, which was a delicious boozy milkshake. <laughs> That's amazing. I see your baby in a basket and raise you a burning bush. Can we, can I make the drink and uh, get back to you? I would love to actually contribute an idea for a burning bush cocktail. That would be so fun. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. While I am very excited for this cocktail compilation that we're about to receive from Rabbi Jess Menon and student cancer Gabe Snyder, I also am the one to bring you the news that we are headed towards our last section of thank yous and closing cues. So, Jess, Gabe, Idan, 
In Shemot, we find out about the power of names, whether given in the moment or in the future or in Midrashim written by rabbis or other people. What is one name or nickname that you have that makes you feel at your most powerful? Jess, we'll start with you. I think one of my most powerful roles in life is as a sibling and in honor of the siblings in this week's Parsha, I want to give the name that my brother, my best friend in the whole wide world calls me, which is Hoda, um, which is the way that we pronounce Hoda, the letter J in Spanish. And it makes me feel like my best self. Beautiful. We are so excited to get to share in some of that best selfness that you've unselfishly shared with us today. Gabe, how about you? You know, in cantorial school, in rabbinical school, we are very specifically told when we enter our internships that we are not allowed to introduce ourselves as cantor or rabbi. That if other people call us cantor or rabbi, we're not necessarily required to correct them but we are not allowed to introduce ourselves. I'm not allowed to say, hi, I'm Cantor Gabe. It's not allowed. However, I am frequently introduced as Cantor Gabe or Cantor Snyder. And one of my favorite things is when little kids come up to me and call me Cantor Gabe. And the reason is that they actually think my first name is Cantor. And it's this really funny thing of what do you do when your role becomes your name? What, what do you do when your role is your entire being in the mind of this child? Um, and I think there's something incredibly limiting about that of like, I'm not allowed to be a three-dimensional person. But there's also something incredibly powerful about seeing myself as fully inhabiting that role for that child at that time. I am their cantor. You are certainly my cantor, as I get the pleasure and privilege of getting to hear you sing and play guitar all the time, especially when I'm feeling down. Sometimes Gabe just brings up the guitar and plays, especially for me, which is really lovely. Idan, what is one of your favorite nicknames that makes you feel at your most powerful? Well, for once, you guys actually gave me an easy question. <laughs> I always have to think the entire episode through to think of an answer, but this one I actually was like, oh, I, I know. And uh, the answer might seem kind of silly, but the name that I feel most powerful with is my name. Um, and that's because 99% of people mispronounce my name from the get-go. Not only do I have a very uncommon name, Idan, if you're Jewish or you know people who are Israeli, you've probably met an Idan. I've met about four or five, not counting myself. But I'm the only Idan I've met, if you can say I've met myself, who spells it the way I spell it, E-D-O-N. All but one of the Idans I know, I-D-A-N, one E-D-A-N, that's a bit of a weird one. But the only people who would know how to pronounce my name or would be familiar with my name would be people who are maybe from Israel or are familiar with Hebrew names. And even then, they see my name in English and don't recognize my name because that's not how they would spell it. So that's not to say 
I don't like my name. I really, really love it that it's so unique like that. But when people say my name correctly, whether I have to correct them in the first place or not, or they get in the first time, because some people do, just not very often, it makes me feel my strongest. I love that. I also love that whenever we mention your name in this apartment, Gabe gets really, really excited and he yells it out like, Idan! For me, my full name is actually Amanda Catherine. It's very long. I don't go by it all the time, although certain people call me Amanda Catherine every day of my life, uh, including my mom. But in my family, often I am called AK, which when I worked at Hillel got changed to AK dubs by my students. And for anyone who knows me well, um, I sign every single email AKW because for some reason I just find it easier than typing out Amanda. AKW makes me feel at my most powerful, I think because it really relates me to my family and because it is so much easier for me to hear than Amanda. If somebody says AK, I automatically turn around and look for my older brother or I look for my parents, um, which is usually strange because it happens at a moment where they're sometimes not there. But for me, that's a name that I always respond to very quickly and makes me feel like I'm at home. And, and sometimes that's really refreshing and really powerful and, and meaningful. And so just for people that want to have powerful and meaningful conversations with you, for people that might want to engage, how can they best find or follow you? I am not on social media of any kind. I do not have a LinkedIn account. And um, it's part of how I pursue joy. However, I do want to talk to you and I do want to continue the conversation. And you can reach me at Jess Minnen, J-E-S-S-M-I-N-N-E-N at gmail.com. And I'm also just going to do a shout out for One Table because sometimes you might be able to find Jess at certain One Table events because she is incredible. Jess, with that, uh, we are so thankful that you've been here and we want to offer any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes. We heard that you might have a couple of puns for our audience tonight. All right, I'm going to lay off the puns, but I am going to tell a joke. That's a pun. So Moses is in the wilderness. He encounters the burning bush and the voice of God all around him. Moses, God says, this is the voice of God. You're God? Moses replies, can't believe it. Yes, it is I, the one true God. I don't believe it. There's no way. You're not really God. Yes, it is true. I am your merciful God. It's really you? No way. Yahweh. <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, we have a lot of head nods and also Idan just gave a symbol that that was like an excellent joke. A plus joke. A number one joke. Very good. Oh, thank you so much, Jess, for that. Thank you, Idan, for being an incredible executive producer, as always. Thank you to Gabe for being funny and also for wowing Rabbi Jessica Minnan to the point where she might leave her, you know, long-term boyfriend and start a new relationship with an incredible soon-to-be heir of cancer. Thank you to Kate for making us sound brilliant every week. We are so appreciative, especially when we get to laugh as much as we have today. 
And thank you to all of our listeners for listening in. Make sure to stay tuned to hear some closing thoughts and also just to hear what's happening in the near future. We look forward to talking with you soon. So while I loved every single moment of this episode and found it really meaningful, I just want to share that Jess's story about being, quote, the idiot in the room, the person that like really had to prove herself going through imposter syndrome, man, A, I felt that way when I went to Jerisha Institute for the first time, being the only Reformed Jew in a mostly Orthodox space. But also, I still feel that way sometimes, even in rabbinical school. It is not easy, and I think there's always just so much to learn it's hard when you're trying to kind of build a name for yourself. It's important to remember that Moses, throughout his entire life, is always the odd man out. Whether he's in Egypt, being the Israelite, being raised as an Egyptian by Pharaoh's daughter, or he's an Egyptian, but also an Israelite in Midian, and then he has to go back to Egypt where he's an Israelite, but is he? Because the Israelites don't really accept him immediately. He's always on the outside, and yet he becomes the greatest, really the quintessential leader of the Jewish people. It actually reminds me of what's called a Johari window, right? This idea of what might be known to yourself and what might be known to others. And things that are known to both is called like an arena. Things that are known to others, but you don't know it is your blind spot. Things that, you know, you might know, but others might not know. We call that a facade. But the things that are unknown are the things that like other people don't know, we don't know, and that we are trying to find out. And a lot of Exodus is about people just finding out who they are and where they are along a journey. It occurs to me that so much of this book is going to take place in the wilderness, a space that's explicitly nowhere. There's no defining feature. There's not really any water, which is why we need to ask for water. There's not really any food, which is why we need to ask for food. There's not really much of anything. We're stuck in between Egypt and the Promised Land, and we get a whole generation in between. Which isn't always great for somebody who's not good with directions. I know we've talked about that in the past. But also, how do you name that? How do you name who you are when you're not entirely sure where you are? I mean, not to mix up books or anything, but we deal with that even in the Garden of Eden, right? When we first started in Bereshit, that was something that Rabbi Avruz told us, that Ali said to us, right? You're never going to know who you are until you can figure out where you are. And when you're lost in the wilderness, that's tough. And yet the wilderness is also a place where we can really find ourselves when we find what we're made of. Um, one of my favorite drashot on this idea of the wilderness is that midbar, which means wilderness, the word midbar can be connected with midaber, which is speaking. Midbar, the wilderness, is not just a place where we're wandering aimlessly, but it's a place where we get to talk to God and where God really listens. I think that's really meaningful, but let's take it even out of the wilderness, right? We're not quite there yet, but let's bring it back to Maim. 
So Mayim, water, and I know that we talk about Moshe because there's this idea that Moses was drawn from the water. But Gabe and I just recently finished up a class uh, on Buber's The Way of Man. And one of the things that Martin Buber talks about is this idea that social interactions, really meaningful encounters with people, are the things that help refresh, replenish the waters of our lives. And this first part of, of the book of Exodus, right, Parshat Shmot, is so powerful because not only are we being introduced to all the people and their names, but we're being introduced to all of these interactions between people, even if we don't know their names. And that's really refreshing. And it's important to recognize that there's going to be a lot more water coming up, whether it's involved in some plagues or we have a um, rather climactic crossing through some water. There's going to be water all over this book. But don't worry, it's never going to wash it all out. Having said all of that, we're so, so excited to be able to continue learning with you and continue listening to you. Feel free to shoot us an email at drinkinganddrashing at gmail.com or to check us out on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, or as always, check us out on our website, www.drinkinganddrashing.com. But heads up, This making a podcast thing, it doesn't come easy and it doesn't always come cheap. So if you're interested in helping support our podcast continue, feel free to head to www.drinkinganddrashing.com and click on the support us tab. We're so excited to be on this journey with you and we'd love for you to join us. L'chaim. L'chaim. Hi, this is Rabbi Jess Minnan, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist, and the bush, the bush, the bush is on fire.